So I'd like to start with the question about practices purification. Um, uh, one of the great commentaries by Buddha Gosa is called the Vasudhi Magga. The Vasudhi Magga is really it's either one or two books depending on how it's published, but it's it's a big book. And it's a commentary, it's probably a 7th century commentary, I believe from Sri Lanka, although I'm not, don't hold me to that. Um, it's a 6th, 7th century commentary on the whole Buddhist path and the, name, and the Theravadan path. And the, and the Visuddhimagga means the path of purification. And it's a very common understanding that this is a path of purification. In the West, we tend not to use that term much, unless you're on retreat. Uh, because it's not a term. In West, it, ha it has other connotations about being good or pure in this way that is not so much associated with the way it's being used in the East. Um, what, although it's not so dissimilar, but it's just not, it's not a moralistic use of the word purification. What, it, what it's describing, what it's pointing at, is that the heart and mind, uh, in the process of, of the unfoldment of practice, start to purify or clarify. It's also a really good word. And it, it, they, they begin to clarify. In other words, the things that obscure, the obscurations of heart and mind. Uh, and, and here the language, again, if you look at some of the traditional language, it sounds more moralistic. It's not actually. The defilements of mind begin to release, or the, what's called kalesas uh, in the traditional language. And it's, the, it's another way we could talk about it. It's, it's ignorance that's being purified. It's not, oh no, we're, it's not a moral, oh, we're becoming these perfect people in a moral sense, even though that can happen. It, it really is about the, the purification of the ignorance or the misunderstandings that we have about what reality is, who we are, and what's happening here. And so in that sense, it purifies our understanding. And as our understanding purifies, our intention clarifies. Like when, when we begin to see things the way they are, then we begin to act based on that understanding. And so, for example, if we begin to see the emptiness of self, empty doesn't mean that there's not an organizing principle here. It means it's not solid, it's not fixed that our ultimate identity is not based on the ego identity. Um, and maybe there's, maybe there's not a need for an identity, ultimately. Once we start to see the emptiness of self, or the fluidity of self, or the uh, lack of uh, solidity of self, it begins to orient us to a different way to what's here. And then it begins to, that orientation also, it, it, it's a different orientation to, oh, who these other beings are who are out here. And so that's what's meant by purification. The, our understanding, our mind gets purified, clarified, so it can see clearly what's the truth of things as they are. 
and in the process of purification, depending on the teaching. And, you know, again, in Buddhism, you get a variety of different outlines of what awakening can look like, all of which are true. Um, there'll be a different series of, of uh, uh, unfoldments that'll happen in the course of practice, some of which are, you know, more significant than others. But the three, three very important ones that we can just speak to now and begin to look at and can contemplate are what are called the three characteristics. Um, uh, the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. That everything is impermanent. That there's a quality to suffering that is inherent in human life. So anicca is impermanence, dukkha is suffering, and anatta means not-self. That the self-construct is just that. It's a construct. And as a construct, it has its time and place, and it's fine, you can use it, you know, whatever your name is, you can call yourself that. Don't take it too seriously, though. Don't take it ultimately to be who you are. We're not a construct, we're not an idea, we're not a belief, we're not a history. Those things are all, you know, relate to who we are. But ultimately, that's not who we are in essence. And so, to begin to purify the mind is to begin to see more deeply the truth of anicca, dukkha, nanata, of impermanence, of suffering, of not-self. And, the, and then the impact of that, the impact of seeing those, of understanding those, first just maybe on a cognitive level, but then on deeper and deeper levels that, that the mind, as it opens, can realize these truths, has a, has a very strong impact on our whole way of being. And so the purification then purifies the mind, begins to purify the heart, and then purifies the action. And so sometimes it's talked about as a purification of body and heart and mind. And I, actually, as I've gotten older, practiced longer, I like the term more and more. It's clearly what, what can happen. It's clearly the possibility that as our understanding gets purified, or like I said, our intention becomes purified. As our intention is purified, our actions follow our intentions. And when, our, and, when, and when our intention is pure or clear, then our actions start to, to rise from that place. There's a beautiful poem from Ryokan. I can't quite remember it. But he says, when your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. And you know, like following the sun and the moon, we naturally follow the way. When your heart is pure, and of course, just in case you don't know, that the word heart and mind are interchangeable in the Asian cultures that Buddhism comes from. So when your heart, heart mind is pure, all things in your world are pure. You see clearly. And then you naturally follow the way. It follows naturally. So in some sense, that's, that's what we do when we <coughs> meditate. We purify, clarify. Now, somebody asked about progress in meditation. Well, part of one of the ways to consider 
um, progress, which is a valid and important way to think about practice, uh, especially if we also can think about not having to make progress both. Both have their place. Not worrying about progress makes it a lot easier to just check in and see, well, what does it mean to progress? One, one way to see about progression, who asked about progression, where was it, yeah, is, is in terms of purification or clarification or direct knowing, seeing clearly. And um, there are different ways that different teachers will uh, encourage you, one, to, to look at progress. One important one that I think is very helpful is to think in terms of uh, checking in, you know, with some regularity about your progress. You know, at least once every five years. See how you're doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? See, see, okay, have you gotten a little uh, freer? Do you feel a little more, um, heart, your heart's free? that the love or the compassion is just more available in a more natural way. You're not doing it so much. Or there's more equanimity. Um, I wouldn't check every meditation, uh, at least for those big qualities, those big markers. You can, you do want to check. You want to consider, well, how are you progressing in the meditation practice? And that you can look at in terms of skillfulness, or like you would look at how an art develops, or a craft develops. And you know, if you've ever studied a craft or an art, or a, any discipline really, any discipline, there are certain developmental tasks that are needed for that discipline to deepen. And the same is true of the meditative art that we want to say, okay, first of all, learning, learning the various skillful means that are necessary just to sit down and sit well. And by that I mean, can you, do you know how to sit up straight? Do you know how to use your hands or your breath? You know, just the first basics, very physical. How to use, how to sit on a cushion, how to sit on a bench, how to sit on a chair skillfully. And then when you've got that, then, okay, well, how long can you sit? Can you sit for 20 minutes, a half an hour, an hour? Have you learned the skillful means, the developmental tasks needed to sit for 45 minutes, let's say? And that, of course, means, oh, we need to learn how to sit with pain, physical pain, discomfort, emotional pain and discomfort, mental pain, discomfort because if you're going to meditate that's part of the terrain that we're going to cover. We're going to study suffering and freedom and you can't have one without the other. They just, just they're both here and so we want to see what you know do I know how to work with physical discomfort when it comes or do I just move? So there's progress in those ways. There's, really, it's the development of a skill or an art, a craft. And that's very, very important to learn. And it's really good to ask a lot of questions about that. A lot of people have done a lot of meditation. You can talk to friends or teachers. If you come on a retreat of any length, 
you'll learn a tremendous amount about the how-to of meditation. And that then sets your foundation for your meditation practice to deepen. Part of the deepening of, or progress of the meditative art is also then beginning to apply or learn how to interpret your meditation through some of the lenses that the Buddha offered. So the five hindrances, it's good to know some of the Dharma teachings so then you can apply them to your meditation practice and see, oh, now I'm having aversion, or now I'm having desire, or now this is sleepiness, or now this is restlessness, or this is doubt. I just described the five hindrances. And then learning how to work with those, there's ways to work with each of them. And then as, as you get, one gets some skill with that, then the hindrances can begin to relax or release or be in abeyance. And then there's another level, there's a progress in the meditative art of what happens when you start to get actually really composed, really collected. And it said when the hindrances are in abeyance, that's, a, that's the beginning of a very rich part of meditation. Like the mind settles, the heart settles. And as we settle, it's like, okay, what the hell do you do now? And, and, and so that's a, that's a significant moment when we see, oh, the hindrances aren't here. Now what is meditation about? Because often in the beginning and for new people, a lot it's about just learning to navigate the hindrances. So seeing, and, and what it means to navigate the hindrances, one of the things it means, is that we learn how to work with our reactivity. And we learn how to not be bound by our reaction, our desire and our aversion and our doubt and our, our crankiness and our sleepiness and our, our wanting it to be a certain way and not wanting it to be other ways. And that whole manifestation of me we start to see, oh, that's not so helpful in the meditative art. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to get rid of that manifestation. But we begin to see there's something here that's not just, oh, I want this, I don't want that, I'm like this, I'm like that. No, no, there's something that's aware of all that. And so when that goes into abeyance, that awareness starts to come more into the foreground. And we can use the clarification of mind now, the mind's been purified to some degree, we can start to use that and the power of that to see the nature of things as they are, we, to see the nature of reality. And we can start to turn that concentrated mind. The Buddha talked about his mind the night of his enlightenment. He said it was concentrated, bright, malleable, usable, uh, powerful, purified. He, he uses that word when he describes his mind on that night. And he turned to look here, and he looked there, and he looked there, and he penetrated reality. So, um, and then there's different recognition. Let's say there was a question about equanimity. Well, 
when the when the um, hindrances start to relax, a certain level of equanimity is here, and then we start to recognize that. And as we start to recognize and learn how to recognize, oh, I know this, this is equanimity. As we learn to recognize the state of equanimity, as we pay attention to it, it deepens. And so there are different kinds of progress in that sense, of learning the art and skill of meditation. And then there's also the level of recognizing freedom, recognizing the freedom of non-clinging, the freedom of non-attachment, the freedom of not-self. And so when I think of progress, I think of those kind of experiences and the knowing of it, the recognition of it. And then it's like, and it's not that they stay. Progress, it's not, you know, somebody, uh, Jack Cornfield always says, he says, you know, it's not like you get to retired enlightenment. Right, you have this experience and that's it, and I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting around and smoking pot forever now because everything's good, doesn't matter. No, it's it doesn't stop. The understanding can continue to deepen, uh, maybe endlessly, and then there are certain markers along the path, and I'm giving just a few, um, and you can. It's helpful to work with teachers to see, to understand the markers. Also, you can read, and different, different systems will have different markers. So one of the most important markers of progress in part of the Theravadan path is called cessation. And, and if one of the ways the Four Noble Truths is talked about is there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a cessation of suffering. And cessation is a really, that's a significant marker. And it's not a, doesn't mean that um, uh, suffering is gone forever. I mean, you can just come to Dharma talk and suffer, you know. It's, there's a lot of different kinds of suffering. But, but cessation means you've seen re, a certain level of reality. You've realized a certain level basically of emptiness. And, that, and there's a whole series of markers before them that indicate that kind of cessation is happening, or that movement towards cessation is happening. Does this start to answer your question? Yeah? There any, anything more you want me to, any way you want me to refine it, or anything specific you had in mind in terms of marker or progress? Yeah. And it's mirage like quality. So and the what kind of quality? The mirage. The mirage like quality. Yeah. So, in some, in, in the Theravadan tradition, cessation is considered the first stage of enlightenment. So, that's why I mentioned it. And there are four stages, traditionally, they talked about four stages, or we could think about it as four levels of enlightenment matures, actually. And the first stage is cessation. It's called stream entry. You enter the stream of the Dharma fully. And there's no doubt anymore. It's one of the markers. Here's a marker. One of the markers of cessation 
is there's no, you don't, you don't doubt the Dharma. You know for yourself the truth of the Dharma. There's other markers, I can't remember, it's, it's a whole other list. So, you know, but again, it's very tricky to think, okay, I want to get enlightened, because we're looking at enlightenment from an unenlightened place. And we're making up a lot of ideas about what enlightenment is. We have a lot of ideas. So I like the Zen, the Zen teaching that says, uh, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. <laughs> like that's where they look. Where's the delusion? Where's the confusion? Where's the ignorance? Keep surfacing it, surfacing it, surfacing it, until there's no more, and then you'll know what enlightenment is. I will give you one other, other way enlightenment is understood in the Theravada, really all the Buddhist traditions. It's the absence of greed, aversion, and confusion. The absence of greed, anger, and delusion. So when you know that's gone, come talk to me. Okay. And that's a, it's posited in an ultimate. You can watch over, over a lifetime of practice that the force of greed, aversion, and delusion loses some of its power. And see, generally for most of it, it's slow. It doesn't just go vump. But it begins to lose its grip. And, then, and you taste the freedom when we're not, we're not, we're not in the thrall. Of, of greed, of need, of, of having to get, when we're not in the thrall of pushing away reality or denying reality or, being, or, or not seeing clearly what reality is. There's a freedom there already. So, progress in practice, practice is purification. Um, uh, Anxiety practice. Anxiety. It's interesting. Did you go to the class on anxiety? I didn't either. We just had a, a week-long class uh, for people working with depression and anxiety. I heard it was great. And we'll definitely want to offer it again. Um, we had to turn people away from that class. Um, I, I don't want to say too much. I'll say a little bit. First of all, I think it's very helpful to normalize it. Uh, it's part of the suffering that we have of human beings. It's on a continuum. Aversion often will have a little fear in it, or a little trepidation, or you know, all the way to clinical anxiety from fear, or you know, I don't really want to know about this, or it's scary, or but all the way to very strong fear, terror anxiety. Um, and meditation can be helpful in working with anxiety. Uh, it's important to be skillful with it. And by skillful I mean sometimes you want to work meditatively with it and sometimes that's not, that's contraindicated uh, depending on the person and also the level of meditative skill. You, ne you need to keep developing the basics to work with any different difficult emotional state. And the thing about anxiety is you don't want to get overwhelmed by it. The meditative 
process is to sit with it, to learn how to recognize it, to be mindful of it, to be aware of it, to be aware of what the body experiences, what the uh, heart experiences, what the cognitive experiences, so we can start to disidentify a little or create some space to be with the anxiety itself. And then we're not quite in the thrall of the anxiety, even when it's here. It's a little like we're both. We're feeling it, we're totally anxious, but we also know, oh, this is anxiety. Again, there's that place that is not the experience itself, but knows the experience. And this is true in general about mindfulness. We can be mindful of suffering and not be identified with it. We can be mindful of fear and not be identified with it. It doesn't mean we're not afraid and that it's not the body isn't having a heart beating or the breath gets short, but we can learn to be with it. And personally, I've worked with plenty of fear in my practice. Uh, I've only had one anxiety attack many years ago, and it was, it was powerful. I was on a long a six-week retreat and I was doing standing meditation. And I was outside and, and I started noticing that my heart was beating really fast. And, I, you know, and I'm a good meditator. I've been meditating for quite a while. So I'm noting it. And this is one of the techniques of meditation. You can name what's happening very quietly in the mind. You can label it. Oh, heartbeat, heartbeat, beating fast, fast, while you're feeling it. And I'm feeling it. And then I notice, oh, I can't breathe. Oh, can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe, fear. Uh, you know, the truth, truth is, if I tell you the story honestly, I didn't even know it was a panic attack until later, but it was. And I was, I was scared. Something was happening in my process. I was scared, but it just showed up physically. And I didn't even recognize the fear, even though later I recognized, soon after. And the heartbeat and the, and the breath, and the breath getting shorter, no breath, can't breathe. And I'm, and I'm being mindful of it because I've done a lot of practice. I knew how to do that. And then I had the oddest experience. It was like, whoo, and it just went out of my body into the ground. And it was like, whoo, and it was just totally settled. A lot of equanimity in it. That doesn't always happen. <laughs> I just want to be careful here. That's like, you know, that, that makes the Dharma sound really good. But it's sometimes, I've had other times when a fear, I was more cognizant of that I was actually afraid. It wasn't panic, but I was afraid. And I would just end up in bed. I'd be on a long retreat. I'd just get in my, I'd do the Eugene Cash fear posture. You get in bed and you pull the covers over <laughs> and you shake. You just let the body shake because it's just full of fear and you let it shake. And, and again, the same process, knowing it is fear, feeling it, breathing with it, breathing with the fear. And slowly it begins to relax and release. And then I'd be okay. And sometimes I'd, there'd be content to the fear. It'd be very clear what it was. Sometimes there'd be no content. It was just fear. Um, there are a whole host of other skillful means that are also available to work with fear or to work with any difficult emotion, difficult mind state. 
what's important is not to, it, it's tricky, like I'm described, I, I, again, I did, I've done a lot of meditation, I had enough skill, I could let it rip. But sometimes letting it rip is not a good thing. In other words, you don't want to be so overwhelmed that you lose your presence of mind. Like I, even though it was really difficult, I've been really scared, I knew what I was doing. And sometimes that's too much, you want to back off, you actually want to go away from the anxiety. Find a place that's not anxious in your body, even if it's your big toe. Or start to do some metta for yourself. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be well. As a way to begin to ground the mind, stabilize the mind, so then you can turn towards the anxiety again. And sometimes in daily life it might mean, you know, watching a video to, to ground yourself or going out and taking a walk in nature, things like that. And going back and forth. At times when you feel centered, then, then turning towards anxiety. It's a little bit like that, practicing with anxiety. And the best book I know, and there may be others, is uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. And, and he's, he talks a very directly about working with anxiety in that book and very skillful. So practice, 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 and practicing during the breaks. Great. What a great question. Thank you for that question. So every week now, and I always say this these days, when we're at the end of the sitting, I say, now we have some time to practice while we're talking, while we're hanging out, while we're going to the bathroom, while we're having tea, how do you do that? I'd like to hear a little bit from you. How do you do it? Does anybody do it? <laughs> Let me hear. Okay, great. Try, try to stay grounded in the body and the breath. This is key. This is key. And here's, and I, I'm going to, this it's so important to stay with your body whether it's with the breath which is a body meditation or with the with the aliveness of the body or the contact with the body the feet on the ground feeling the ground or, or some people will hold their own hand will touch their thumb or as a way to stay in contact with the body um, Okay, let me hear some other things. I want to hear some more. What do you do? Um, well, I just was thinking about the Thich Nhat Hanh teaching when you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. Right. And that comes to mind for me, like if I'm standing in line, uh-huh. standing in the line. Right. If I'm taking a pee. Right. So the, the comment is basically to do one thing at a time. In, in Zen, sometimes it's called limiting ourselves to just what's happening now and to begin to orient that way. And it's not our orientation in our culture, right? Our orientation is to multitask. And, it's, and if you just did, if you spent a day, one day, just doing exactly what you were doing, that would be a very powerful day of practice. Do a whole day, just do what, don't do two things at once. So yeah, very good. Just when you're standing in line, stand in line. Okay, what else do you do? 
I try to focus on wise speech, and particularly the impulse to talk. There's so much coming in. Uh-huh. So focusing on right speech and the impulse to talk and what's coming in and watching the intention. Mm-hmm. Great. Good way to practice in, the, in between. What else? Who? Who, Gail? Tonita. Tonita. She's, oh, she's, she's raising your hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just noticing if you're standing in somebody's way and you're trying to do it. So noticing where you are in relation to other people. Like actually being, this is, um, uh, there's a, a word, let's see if I can remember the phrase in Buddhism. Clear comprehension of context. It's part of mindfulness. Clear comprehension of context. So clearly comprehending, comprehending where we are and what's happening. And that's part of mindfulness practice. I'm going to add one. These are all good. You, you want to add one more? So, so you're saying basically um, uh, contemplating a certain ideal and understanding as a way to reorient. Right, so finding faith. Okay. I want to stick with how to practice in between um, just hanging out here in terms of I, I think the most important thing for how to practice in between is making the practice the most important thing rather than and every and so it's a right understanding a right view I'm talking about so the view is that oh this is practice and anything I do then is in the service of practice I'm actually not interested the 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 social part is secondary the tea is secondary the movement is secondary the the going to the bathroom is actually second. That's all subsumed within right view of, of what's happening. And what's happening now is we're practicing. And so beginning to see what we're doing is practicing then allows us to do it a variety of different ways. But we really, the, 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 the first step of the Eightfold Path, which is right view or right understanding, becomes essential. And this is why clarifying the mind, seeing the truth of the Dharma becomes important because then when we have that view, that perspective, everything falls into place. And mostly, personally, I would stay with the body. That's what I do. Just try to stay, even now, I'm trying to stay with my body, feel my body, see what happens, see what that's like. A lot of times, my cow, a certain amount of my consciousness is in my feet or in my torso. And you can see what happens if you actually come out of your mind and into your body right now. 
out of your thoughts into your body. It begins to change our orientation. We're not oriented out there. We're not oriented up here so much. We're oriented here in the present moment. And we can start to relate from that. We can start to, to see what it's like to relate, to hang out, to talk. And then questions of right speech come, become more foreground again. I think somebody asked about speech and nonviolent communication. Wow. Um, but I'm not going to go there because I'm not a nonviolent communication teacher. And I want to go to the last question because we're out of time. I'm sorry. Um, which is about Buddha nature and the Theravada. Uh, I think that's an important question. And uh, where does Buddha nature fit in the Theravada? Uh, it fits perfectly. It's nowhere in the Theravada that I can find it. So there's no, it's that, that's not a term that's used so much in the Theravada. It's used much more in the Mahayana. And it's a beautiful understanding, an important understanding. And it doesn't mean if you practice in the Theravada, you won't have the experience of Buddha nature. It just means it's not talked about in that way. But we can talk about it because we're not bound to any uh, one Buddhist tradition. You know, uh, for better or for worse, we're Americans. And, 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 and in that way, we are um, uh, the beneficiaries of a tremendous, uh, uh, rich, potent time in Buddhist history as Buddhism uh, uh, has rooted here over the past 100 or 150 years since immigrant cultures came to uh, uh, America from Japan or Thailand or China or Tibet and, and then of course as the um, more uh, the eastern immigrants met the western immigrant religion uh, the western immigrants met the eastern immigrant religion here and how it's rooted in the meditative practices uh, especially in the last 40 years very strongly um, and so one of the ways freedom is talked about is Buddha nature. And it's, it's a beautiful contemplation. Contemplate what's here when we're not an idea, when we're not an image, when we're not our history, when we're not our usual identity. What's here? It's not like, and, and what I'm describing is a certain kind of selflessness or emptiness, but emptiness doesn't mean there's nothing here. Emptiness means there's no fixed identity. There's no fixed anything, actually, in the whole world. Nothing is fixed. And so what's here when we start to see the truth of impermanence in a deep, in a deep way? What's here when greed, hatred, and aversion, and delusion are absent? Right? It's not that there's nothing here. There's no thing here. That's true. There's no thing, but there's not nothing. And what we might say when we see the qualities that arise that are innate in us of love, of, like you were saying, the, the Christ consciousness, we could say, or the loving consciousness, and the metta, and the, the compassion, or the joy, and the... Uh, the quality of uh, generosity and uh, in interconnectedness and, and actually seeing who, who we are. And it's not even, it's not an individual we, it's, it's all of us. 
and start to see that, start to know that, then, then we start to have some idea of what Buddha nature might be. Okay? So I, I think that's a good place to stop. Is it Buddha's birthday today? Is it Buddha's birthday today? I think every day. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, different, I don't think so. Well, right, it's celebrated at different times in different cultures. You know, at least I, at least I seem to remember in Zen they do something at May eighth, that they do a and 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 it's the same. His birth, his nirvana, and his death are all the same day, at least in some of the traditions. But I'm sure you can go online and find out, and you can, you can send him one of those email cards, you know. <laughs> so let's sit for a moment before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.